Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with Bob Masters, chair of the New York State Bar Association's criminal justice section and former counsel to the Queens District Attorney's Office. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you here on Miranda Warnings, uh, uh, to have a district attorney here to also perhaps maybe uh, read me my rights. Well, I tell you, <laughs> I, I'm so happy to see you again because, as, as we recall, we both met through uh, efforts that the State Bar and the District Attorneys Association uh, put together to try and ensure that there was uh, appropriate legislation for the recording of interrogations and for uh, the best of identification procedures. And uh, we spent a lot of time together working on that, and it took years to come to fruition. And uh, from my experience in watching legislation start to finish, uh, I think the three-year arc of what we worked on would probably be called instant gratification in the right. world of legislation, and we were very happy to have it. Yes, uh, the New York State Bar Association, certainly myself, was uh, very happy to be part of the uh, legislation regarding uh, criminal interrogations and wrongful convictions that uh, we were able to work on with the District Attorney's uh, Association as well as the Innocence Project. Absolutely. Uh, on two opposite sides of the, uh, of the spectrum that we're able to come together um, for the common good. Uh, and I think it's clear that it was the State Bar that was responsible for brokering the divide between those two really significantly uh, oriented um, advocacy groups that right. represent very powerfully and I think very effectively the sides of each of their interests. And I think it was the state bar that was able to try and work, make us work towards finding uh, a middle ground that was going to work effectively. Right. And, and now, you know, fortunately, we're three years into it and it looks like it's working very well. Right. It worked and it passed. And, and you know, our criminal justice section, which you're the, you're the chair of now, is uh, kind of unique, I think, on the spectrum because you have both prosecutors and defense counsel, uh, all of whom are part of the same section. And when they look at these issues and they come out with positions, uh, they're already fully vetted because you've got people on both sides of the issue. I, I think that is one of the um, real positives of that section, that you have the full spectrum of views um, there. And apart from that, you have so many different levels of experience involved. There are some uh, people who've been practicing 50 years who have seen all of these trends come and go. You have very, very new lawyers who, in many ways, some of these things, it's the first time they've confronted these issues. And as a result of that, I think getting the fresh idea and the voice of experience at the same time, we do come to something that I think winds up being practical in our recommendations. Right. So I'm hoping that you know maybe the criminal justice section will be able to to break through on this issue of uh, bail reform. This is something that the New York State Bar Association has been involved in for a, a long period of time. For many years, we had 
uh, and we still have to uh, to some extent issues regarding mass incarceration. We've had we had uh, people that were brought up on charges that weren't were not able to uh, to meet monetary bail and then were incarcerated. And so then last year we had something called bail reform. And uh, tell us a little bit about what the what the bail reform was designed to address. Well, you know, and part of it is is New York. And I think that people do not realize that the state is so remarkably diverse, not only among its citizens and the people who reside here, but you have to realize regionally that we have the largest urban center on the continent in New York State. We have some of the largest and most expansive and in many ways, I think, mature suburbs and exurbs anywhere in the United States. And people don't realize how rural things are outside of uh, that area when we get into the North Country and we go out towards the western part of the state. And as a result of our sort of arcane and aged, I think, court system and some of our older laws, people don't realize that Around the state, in in probably more than half the state geographically, bail is set by non-lawyer judges. And I think that... Like in a town or village court, for example? That's exactly right, David. And and what happens is uh, it is someone who has either been appointed by a county board or won a little local election. And uh, you have non-lawyer judges who are making these decisions and and not to say that they are uh, making them wrongly or badly, I think that the practice of law led to a habitual of uh, setting of bail on low-level crimes in some of these rural communities that resulted in people being held in bail for l- relatively low-level crimes on not that much money and spending time in jail, several weeks, and then when a lawyer was finally at their side and the case would appear, and generally at that first appearance, that was the first time a district attorney was involved. And there became a remarkable incentive for the defendant to just plead guilty to anything, to go home and put the whole thing behind them. And unintentionally, I think the system was essentially incentivizing a universe of people who may have been innocent of crime to plead guilty to something to just get out from under. And I think that started the review of bail practices. And in the meantime, they were incarcerated, and which was a cost to the, to the, to the state to keep them incarcerated every day that they were in, in prison, perhaps unnecessarily. And, and you have to face the fact that, you know, someone's, someone's employment situation may have been jeopardized, changed. Um, family situations may have been altered. Kids not having parental supervision. And the dominoes falling in these areas, I think, were sort of an unintended consequence of decisions that I don't know that were being made for the best reasons with the fullmost information that should have been provided to everybody deciding really what essentially came down to a question of liberty. Right. And, and of course, these were people that were arrested. They weren't convicted of anything. And they were spending time incarcerated because they couldn't meet monetary bail. So, right? That, That is exactly right. And I think once the focus started, I think it moved into other areas of the state 
And once it moved downstate, I, I think the dynamic became different because I think it also became intertwined with the desire on the part of many people in uh, elective offices to um, close Rikers Island. Rikers Island is the basically the jail facilities. It's a number of jails uh, on a small island. It's, it's actually an isthmus, but it's, it's called an island that uh, resides between Bronx and Queens County in which uh, defendants charged with crime or inmates who've been sentenced to brief sentences under a year are housed. Uh, the facilities are very old. They are decrepit, and they have led to legions of stories of terrible treatment. And there was no question that something needed to be done about that. But a movement came to close Rikers Island, which then created the uh, need for additional jails, which were going to be outsourced into the individual counties within New York City. And all of these things, I think, required having a much smaller inmate population while all of this was taking part, which is probably going to take well more than a decade. So I think there became a focus on trying to find ways of limiting uh, the number of people who are being held pre-trial. Um, all of these good intentions kind of all came together and resulted in a movement to, I think, try and adjust the bail system. And, you know, certain terms take life, uh, the term mass incarceration, it, it is a term that's, but, you know, a reality is, is that uh, I believe since the middle of the last decade, New York State has always ranked somewhere between 8th and 11th in the rate of incarceration within the United States. And I think among the larger states, it has the lowest rate of incarceration. So, yeah, not saying that we can never try and do better. The idea is that we are not in a position where we are, I think, among the drivers of, of incarcerating people, that we do look into diversion programs to try and prevent people from going to jail already. And I think that this was an idea of trying to basically even prevent people from doing even brief periods of time before they ultimately had their cases litigated and concluded. Right. And, and so last year, the legislature passed uh, what's been referred to as bail reform. We'll talk a little bit about some, what some of those changes are. Uh, those changes went, to, went into effect uh, January 1st, uh, 2020 of this year. And, uh, you know, we've seen immediate uh, decrease in incarceration of thousands of people that would have otherwise been incarcerated. So it has had that effect. But let's talk a little bit about what the what bail reform me actually means. What, what was the change in the law uh, that went into effect in January of, of this year? And I, I it it was previously that for every time an individual was arrested, and every time that a defendant would then appear the first time in court to have his charges ultimately aired against him, and that was called arraignment. At arraignment, a part of the arraignment process was that the defendant, the court would make a bail decision, and the bail decision would be based on a number of statutory factors, including 
the defendant's prior record, including whether or not the defendant had a history of not appearing in the past on prior charges, including the strength of the case, the charges, the possible sentence, and the background of the individual. And uh, so it was every single section of the penal law that was the calculus that was used in every case. Starting... And then uh, the, the judge would impose a cash bail. The judge could impose release on recognizance through cash bail, bonds, partially secured bonds, fully secured bonds, unsecured bonds. And if they couldn't meet bail, they, they would be incarcerated in. until they could, which is kind of a difficult thing because they, they also can't be working if they're incarcerated, so they would just stay in prison. All of those collateral consequences to an adverse bail decision by a court were in play. And so then it changed. And what the legislature did, um, and I I think this is the part that is controversial and the part that um, is what is drawing some degree of ire, is the fact that what the legislature decided was that there were, quote unquote, qualifying offenses. And qualifying offenses were, they started with what are called Um, Class A felonies, which are essentially murder, conspiracy to commit murder, the attempted murder of a police officer, and a limited number, only a few major narcotics trafficking statutes. And other than that, it was violent felonies, and those are prescribed by statute, and it's a relatively small percentage of the crimes in penal law, as well as sex offenses, any crime that is within the Article 130 of the penal law, and then a few other discrete uh, uh, cases of domestic violence. And those but all that you enumerated, those are still remain subject to, uh, to bail. What was excluded from the package was everything else, any kind of larceny, any kind of misdemeanor assault, any misdemeanor whatsoever. Uh, regardless of uh, prior record. What I think is proving very controversial is the fact that there is a burglary in the second degree is uh, considered a violent offense even if no one gets hurt. And that is essentially the garden variety residential burglary. An individual uh, breaks into your home, is looting the home, is apprehended in your home during the process of it, that person is not eligible to get bail no matter what. And that was an exclusion that um, I I think most people in the criminal justice arena found a little head-scratching, as did robbery in the second degree, the particular theory being accomplice liability, where a number of people do a surround and essentially threaten or beat someone and take something from them, without a weapon or without causing physical injury, that is a fairly standard robbery scenario that was also excluded from having bail. So, Which means that they would what? They would be incarcerated? They would not, they, they would not no be bail incarcerated. Be, no matter what, no matter the level of proof against they them. They would have to be released. No matter how, and, and our sentencing structure is such that there are people known as mandatory persistent felons. Twice before having been convicted of a violent felony, 
then being arrested and charged with a third one. It's essentially New York's very limited three strikes you're outlaw. That person would be eligible for a lifetime sentence, a, a minimum of, of usually 15 years up to life imprisonment. And without recognizing it, the legislature had the scenario where someone who is essentially a career burglar caught absolutely red-handed, perhaps even on surveillance video, perhaps with property in their pockets, perhaps admitting, yes, you got me, not eligible for bail. And if that person were to stick around until the end of the case and be convicted, would have to get a life sentence. That's an incongruity that I don't think anybody can defend. And right. and, it, and, and when you say not eligible for bail, that means they're released. They're released automatically, right. no matter yeah. what the proof of evidence against them, no matter how severe their record is. And that is something that I think is is driving much of the concern about this statute. And so now, now we're seeing, so it's only been in effect for a couple of weeks, but we're already, there's uh, all these kind of, uh, you know, it was relatively high-profile cases where someone commits a crime, uh, gets caught, gets arrested. They 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 go before a judge. They the judge cannot provide for uh, bail. They're released, and then they go out and commit the same crime. Sometimes the very next day, we had there was a, a woman that committed a hate crime where she was assaulting, uh, assaulted three people. Could not get. Uh, could not no bail could be uh, imposed by the judge, and then the next day did the same thing, and and that obviously got some notoriety. And now they're saying now we the bail reform now needs to be reformed somehow. I I think that the gaps in the statute and in the attempt, and and I think conceptually this is the problem that I think a lot of people. Uh, outside the criminal justice system, and frankly, those in the criminal justice system have, is the idea of removing from judges the discretion on this particular issue about setting bail on really the vast majority of cases that are going to come before them. And so now judges, they they can't now consider threat to, to the public safety as uh, part of imposing uh, bail reform. So if it's not in the categories that you listed and and the judge in his or her determination thinks the person is a threat to public safety, can still cannot impose bail. Dangerousness, New York is uh, the only state in the union that has never been able to include future dangerousness in its bail uh, decisions. That was even prior to the reform. But uh, the court was able to consider the notion in the idea of likelihood of return. Pretty much the formula that I think a court would rely upon would be looking at what is the charge, what is the possible sentence, what is the evidence against the individual. And if it was a serious charge with a lengthy sentence with um, substantial evidence, throwing in the mix someone's background for having committed prior crimes, as well as a history of non-appearances, that was, I think, the type of formula that a court could reliably use to set, I think, a meaningful bail amount to see that someone was, if they did come back, that there were family members who had posted property, who had, had gone to great financial lengths, to really, I think, make it much more difficult for that person not to appear. Right. But or, or to set bail so high that the court would basically be saying, 
we want you to basically become destitute or people who uh, are going to be posting for you to become destitute as an insurance against your coming back. So now there's a feeling that uh, perhaps the pendulum has swung too far in uh, restricting judges in imposing bail on certain people that uh, perhaps should have uh, some additional uh, bail before they're released. Uh, I, I, that is absolutely true, and I believe it to be um, consistent with uh, something that Commissioner Shea actually, I think he wrote in the New York Times only a week ago, and he was referring to the idea of exactly the pendulum swing and that it did go far too quickly, far too fast. And in his article, he provided some kind of significant statistics. Um, just from 2018 alone in, the New, in New York City, there were 738 people who were charged with burglary two or robbery two who were, had bail set against them and that they remained in. Now those very people, if they were arrested today, those people would not be eligible to be in. And cumulatively, they had a history prior to that arrest of 9,926 prior arrests, 1,134 of them for robberies, 891 of them for assaults, 524 for burglaries, 334 of them for weapons, 48 of them for sex crimes, including 15 rapes, and 25 murders or attempted murders. And I think that when you look at it, that population, that universe of individual who a court can't even say to itself, I have concerns about these people, that regardless of their concern, they have no judicial authority for considering anything else other than release. I think that is something that is troubling to most people when you explain that to them. Right. And and uh, just for those who might want to read the full article, it was uh, Commissioner Shea article in, in the New York Times on January 23rd, right, 2020. Yeah, I believe it was just in the online version. Online. And so so let's talk about that. So we had a problem. They, the, the legislature, I think, in, in good faith, tried to address it. Uh, as you indicate now, there's some uh, pretty, pretty glaring loopholes that need to be plugged in. Uh, what are you seeing now as uh, an effort to try to uh, rectify this? I, I think, unfortunately, uh, when I was uh, a prosecutor in one of my roles also as uh, counsel to the late Judge Brown, uh, I was also a, a legislative representative that went to Albany on behalf of the District Attorneys Association. And I, I think the best legislation is the legislation that winds up being vetted by all stakeholders. And I think that the need for legislation, the drive for it, ordinarily comes from a problem that no one can ignore. No one can deny that the problem exists. That's step one. The much harder step is the solution to the problem. And a number of the solutions to problems can invite other problems. Right. And I think like that, this one. And that's exactly what happened here. And I think that um, the nature of the dynamic by which this legislation came to light 
the fact that there were very, very few hearings held on it. There was very little discussion about it. There was not an invitation uh, of any real meaningful uh, participation by prosecutors, by police groups, and by the judiciary that I think what happened is we wound up with a, an, an imbalanced view of all of the potential problems. And now a number of the predictable problems from, for instance, a judge's point of view, are coming to light. Right. And unfortunately, we, I think we could have had these discussions before we went this far. Instead, now we're having the discussions after the bill has been enacted. And I think every day, another one of the kind of yawning gaps of the legislature's failure to cover situations is coming to light. I think just yesterday there was, in the New York Post, uh, the front page was uh, about uh, seven young men arrested for running a fentanyl mill in the Bronx that um, I believe that they were responsible and apprehended at that time with nearly a million dollars of fentanyl and the dimensions of their ring uh, were promoting and moving millions and millions of dollars of fentanyl up and down the East Coast, um, they were not eligible for any sort of bail. They are all, as I understand it, nationals from the Dominican Republic. They will be facing the potential of very lengthy sentences. But the, they're released. And they've been released, and a judge can do nothing about it other than ask for their passport. So what are we going to see now? Are, are, is, is there some talk of changes to the legislation that will give the courts more discretion in certain cases uh, to, to impose bail? Are we seeing any sort of legislation making its way up uh, through in the next session? What I think you see in the dynamic right now is in the early stages an appreciation of the fact that this reform is not seamless. The consequence of it not being seamless is becoming greater and greater every day. And I think that is incentivizing um, some members of the legislature to seriously look at potential changes. And I think that the reality is, in some communities, I, I, I do think in the suburban uh, areas of the state, I think is where a number, it seems to be, of the constituents seem to be unaware of it when it was passed in April of 2019 and have become very <laughs> conscious of it in January of 2020. And I think that they are now becoming very, very vocal with their local legislators about their unhappiness with these results. Do you think we're going to see something happen in this session, or is it is it just too soon in order to get those changes? My prediction, I, see, I think that, you know, uh, inside political baseball, I think where the state Senate is concerned, I think there is more of a desire to do something for a variety of reasons. I think in the Assembly, which had long been committed to this legislation, I don't know that they will feel the urgency to move on it. And of course, both houses have to feel the same way relatively about a, a topic at the same time for it to happen. Right. Um, my, my sense is that there will be efforts. I do not hold out great hope that changes will be of a grand dimension. I think they will be kind of on the fringes. I see. 
I, I think in the early stages. I do think that this is an issue that's going to continue to linger, though, in, in future sessions. So in conjunction with the bail reform, there was also something called discovery reform, which, uh, you know, required uh, prosecutors to give up some information that they had about uh, a defendant and about a crime that was committed, which historically they would, you know, they had the ability to hold on to for uh, a long period of time. Now that's changed so that there's very uh, precise time limits when that information has to be disclosed. And so now we have this kind of compounding the, the, the issue that that uh, Commissioner Shea actually raises in his in his article that we have violent criminals now being released uh, without bail and then also being required to be given information about their accusers within 15 days and now they're back on the street and potentially posing uh, a danger to uh, either the victims or the accusers of a crime. Yeah, David, I think the discovery reform, what, what happened was that the advocates for it and ultimately the legislatures that embraced it, um, they wanted to take statutory schemes from, uh, from other states and utilize them uh, within New York State. And my concern about that during all the years that discovery was discussed was very simply that changing one portion of the criminal procedural law and borrowing from one state and trying to shove it into New York State's criminal procedural law could have a, a lot of unintended consequences and bad effects. And, and very simply, let me say that um, in New York, New York is the only state in the union that requires grand jury activity to indict somebody for a felony. And in most other states that we borrowed these statutory schemes from, uh, grand jury activity is only required for a capital case. Um, in New York State, the states and in the federal government that require grand jury uh, activity, um, hearsay is admissible. New York State is the only state that requires non-hearsay to be presented in the grand jury. And as a result of that also, New York State has immediate review by a judge for the grand jury procedure to look at the transcript of it, to analyze it, and to see whether or not what was done in front of the grand jury is legally sufficient and whether or not it meets the bounds of propriety. And what happened now, and, and in conjunction with that, with the importance of the grand jury in New York, the use of it for so much more than it is used in other states, and the fact that um, it is requiring the live testimony of actual witnesses offering the information that they have before someone can be indicted, New York had the long history of grand jury secrecy. Indeed, it was a felony if anybody would reveal, other than the witness themselves, what happened in the grand jury. Which, I, which e even to a uh, defendant. Yes. And so a defendant doesn't know what the proof is against Other than them. his own. Right. Other than his own or testimony, her. if you offer her testimony. Now, what frequently is one of the greatest difficulties that a prosecutor faces and for 29 years, seven months, and 10 days, that's what I did for a living. Who's counting? Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's often to get someone to testify about something they saw, about something they heard, 
and something that they were aware of that would incriminate someone that perhaps they knew. And the natural reluctance of a witness testifying to that and perhaps being exposed for putting this person in criminal jeopardy was an enormous block to ultimately providing the, enough information to prosecute a case. And my standard conversation again and again and again was, look, most cases end in a plea. If you testify, the odds are we'll not have to turn this information over. If we do, it'll be very late in the case. We'll be able to, at that point, offer you any protection you may need. And that conversation was very, very helpful in securing the cooperation of witnesses. Now, as it turns out, uh, grand jury secrecy has an expiration date of about 15 days after it's provided. And I think what Commissioner Shea is uh, anticipating is it is, as that becomes better known, I think, in the community at large, it will be harder and harder to secure the level of cooperation that we've had in order to ultimately prosecute cases. And as I've described it, it's, it's almost a fundamental renegotiation of the social contract that we've lived by for some time. And it used to be the idea that if you see something, say something. And now we're in the position of if you see something and say something, 15 days after you saw it and said, it'll be known by the person you saw and said it about, and you'll have to deal with the consequences of, of that afterwards. I think that has to prove to be a disincentive to witness cooperation going forward. And right. I think that's what the commission is concerned right. about. Right. And of course, but the other side of that is from the defense perspective, it, they're, go they're going through this whole process blind, basically. So there's all this proof, supposedly, that's out there, and they don't know about it. And now... The, the playing field is a, a balanced a little bit more because now at least they know what what the proof is. Out I, I have I myself I when I was trying cases I probably tried some of the most discovery intense cases in this state. Uh, the Zodiac Killer who hmm. was at large for year at, at large in year uh, I believe for eight years before he was apprehended. What but, took you so long? Uh, <laughs> he, he happened to be very good at hiding in plain sight and in the meantime did 10 shootings, uh, which he killed three people. But um, there were two separate police task forces and they did thousands and thousands of interviews. And when he was almost accidentally apprehended, um, I was treated to what amounted to a room of discovery material. I right. And I knew that I had to see that that got turned over well before trial, and I knew that it would lead to a delay. I began turning it over almost at the earliest moment I possibly could. Turning and over the proof immediately. Absolutely. Right. There was yeah. no, I, I, I did not see any way that either side could effectively handle such voluminous information right. without starting doing it And oftentimes, early. obviously, there's no nefarious intent in not disclosing it. Uh, on, in some instances, it is for the protection of whoever happened to be an innocent witness or innocent victim. Uh, let me ask you about the, the Zodiac uh, killer. What was the tip that, that got you, uh, that, that set you off, that you were able to, to track him? Um, it, it was as simple as... It was a hot day, he was in a bad mood, and his younger sister was playing loud music and she wouldn't listen to him and turning, turning the music down, mm -hmm. and he shot his sister. 
superficially wounding her, but it led to the police responding to the home. He then started a lengthy siege where he was holding the police at bay, firing his homemade weapons, and that became the real clue that it was homemade weapons that led to pretty much all of the dominoes falling. And weapons led. that were similar to ones that were used in the other uh, Ab- Absolutely. Other same, it became same neighborhood, same, and that led to the suspicions, and the fingerprints revealed that we, we had our man. I see. Interesting. Very interesting. There's one other issue I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and it's the uh, Commission on Prosecu- Prosecutorial Conduct. Uh, this is a commission that was set up in the state to oversee uh, district attorneys and, and uh, attorneys that work in district attorney's office um, to, if there's any sort of impropriety, for example. Uh, you were part of a lawsuit uh, because you uh, uh, worked with, uh, during your work as the, uh, with the Queens district attorney, you were part of a lawsuit to say that this violated the uh, state constitution. Uh, there was recently a Supreme Court decision on that lawsuit. Tell us a little bit about what just happened with that. Yeah, the the idea was, and once again, this, this legislation was born of concerns that uh, I think over a period of time that prosecutors wielded an awful lot of authority and power in our system, and I, I, that's undeniable. We do. I say we now. Uh, although I've, I'm, I'm out of the business for the last 30 days, but uh, prosecutors do wield an awful lot of power and authority. Um, everything they do is generally reviewed by a court to determine whether or not an individual has uh, at times uh, been wronged and the court has the immediate authority to rectify that by reversing the case, dismissing it. But I, I think the concern became the use of tactics that were uh, by particular DAs in pressing, I think, their advantage or their authority beyond scope that it that it appropriately should have. And something that might not necessarily become apparent immediately in a court proceeding might not really, maybe there's a pattern in practice over the course of many cases, maybe something might come to light outside of the court proceeding. And and certainly, um, you know, I, I is, uh, uh, was, a, was a member of, in, in my office, I was the chair of our uh, commission on prosecutorial uh, conduct that we had in our office to review things. We called it the uh, Committee on Professional Standards that we would review basically anything that we thought that an assistant had done that had been wrong to see if there was remedial action necessary or uh, on rare occasions discipline. So internal review by the Queens District Attorney's Office of everything that your the attorneys in your office did? We had been doing that for the, the last decade. And a number of other offices, I think, were on the vanguard of doing it. And the District Attorney's Association itself uh, has an ethics guidance group of which I was a member. Uh, all of those things were in place, but um, that said, I think that there, there were some poster children around the state of some particular district attorneys, a number of them who were elected, who um, frankly were performing outside the norms uh, of our professional standards. One was a district attorney in St. Lawrence County, Mary Rain who uh, for years was, there were complaints 
she was grieved by a judge, and actually the District Attorneys Association uh, implored the Grievance Committee of the Third Department to examine her behavior, the allegations, and to act on them because, as we expressed, you know, she either should have been able to get her good name back and go on serving the rest of her term or something should have happened so that the citizens of that county had a chief law enforcement officer that they should trust. And unfortunately, the grievance system took nearly, I believe, two and a half years for them to ultimately um, have their conclusion of their investigation where they uh, ultimately suspended her from practice. And ironically, she had lost an election and she was no longer the district attorney by the time they got around to doing that. By the that. time they got to it, she was no longer and, the district attorney. And that attorney. did point to a soft spot in the yeah. grievance, the current grievance system. And of course, in, in New York State, under the New York State Constitution, all attorneys are subject to discipline by the various appellate divisions in which they practice, including attorneys at work for the district attorney's office. Uh, so any grievance against any attorney would go to the appellate division. It, and I'm just going to say, for those who are listening, it does not go to the New York State Bar Association. So Thank you. If you think, if you think that there's an attorney that has uh, a disciplinary issue, uh, sh- the issue goes to the appellate division, either the first, second, third, or fourth appellate division of New York. New York State Bar Association has no uh, authority or inclination uh, for disciplining uh, of attorneys. But anyway, um, district attorneys obviously hold a special place um, in uh, the, because of their authority. Uh, perhaps more authority than uh, uh, just a, a general practitioner, certainly. And so this Commission on Prosecu- Prosecutorial Conduct was created to kind of oversee, and that was a problem, though, for, it, it for had the district a, attorneys. The, the idea of the commission had a very facile appeal, that there was this group of government actors with seemingly significant, if not in some cases almost unlimited power, that did have tremendous authority over the life and liberty of so many people. So therefore, we have to have something to watch them. And that that is an attractive soundbite. But you have to realize the job of being the district attorney and the old adage by uh, Tom Dewey, who became the governor and Uh, pretty close to being the president, when he was the district attorney of New York County, uh, he basically described that the need for doing the job had to be done without fear or favor. And what I think the people who were advocating for this commission didn't realize that all decisions would be made because of fear or favor, that taking a controversial case that might lead to you being complained to at this at this commission might dissuade a district attorney from exercising discretion in that area. The idea of not bringing charges against somebody who might be rich or powerful, who might be able to go to uh, this commission, the idea of not even commencing an investigation because of the consequence of all of these things would enter into an equation that currently they don't. 
we, we, we base our decisions on the evidence in the law, and we shouldn't be basing it upon whether or not we're going to be grieved in front of that commission. And unfortunately, that was an unintended consequence. I think that's what made it bad policy. What made it, I think, unsustainable was all of us uh, lawyers, public officials, district attorneys, the governor, judges, we all take an oath to uphold not just the law, but the Constitution of the United States and the state of New York. The Constitution of the state of New York is a much larger document than the Constitution of the United States. And what the court can and can't do is enumerated very, very carefully. And what this legislation did was take from the mid-level courts in, in New York State, the appellate division, it took from them the sole authority to discipline lawyers. And that is something that has been a cornerstone of our state constitution uh, for more than 100 years. It also basically has to try and have the judiciary remain independent, that whatever the judiciary has to do, whatever role it's going to perform, it can't be altered by the other two branches of government, just giving them homework assignments, that the state, the, the, the constitution has to be amended to change the to-do list of the various judicial officers. And this legislation was passed without availing itself of amending the Constitution. And that was something that we pointed out to the legislators again and again and again. Uh, In June of 2016, I testified at a hearing, and I, I think I actually pointed out to the members of the legislature the very clauses that this judge relied upon to strike down this legislation, right, and and as you as you noted, uh, the the district attorneys uh, association uh, and the district attorneys throughout the state were involved uh, plaintiffs in a lawsuit. The Supreme Court, at least, has recently held in support of uh, the position that uh, this is uh, the commission is violative of the New York State Constitution because it removed from the courts and the appellate division the disciplinary authority uh, of of lawyers and now we'll see if it's perhaps yeah, our, appealed or we were um, we were very gratified with the court's decision we owe a great debt of gratitude to uh, 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 our lawyers Jim Walden and Jake Gardner who uh, pro bono uh, asked to represent us and did a marvelous job and um, we are hopeful that now that I think this formula has been proven to be unworkable, that if there is a desire, for instance, to improve the grievance system, to put members in the grievance committee who specialize in the practice of criminal law or uh, current or former prosecutors on the grievance committees, that may help. And the idea of reporting incidents of where prosecutors have gone afoul. Uh, there is a, a, uh, a lack of transparency in the results of what some of the investigations of the grievance committee does, and, and that's for good reason. If you, know, if you go and you ask someone to do a closing on your house, and that lawyer does a very good job and is very fair, and then someone is unhappy with the bill and they file a grievance, and if that were to become known to everyone, that would be really ruinous to that person's career, their life. So what happens is that the grievance committee only reports where they find 
cause for discipline and somebody's right. been disciplined. Um, I think that it, it would not be a bad idea for the grievance committee at the end of the year to report out X number of complaints were received about prosecutors and Y number were found to be valid. And I think that that might improve the confidence people had in that prosecutors were in the main doing the right thing for the right reason. Right. Well, Bob Masters, thank you very much for your time here on Miranda Warnings. Thank you for your service to the Bar Association as chair of the criminal justice section. Thank you for your almost 30 years of service to the to the Queens County community. Um, we have a feature here on Miranda Warnings. We've been talking about some very serious topics, but we have a feature called Music Book or Movie. Is there a particular performance of some kind that's of, of uh, interest to you? You know, it's funny is that um, when I knew that uh, my time within the office was concluding, uh, people would ask me what I was going to do, and I would, would joke that I was going to write a book. And afterwards, I began to think about if I were going to write a book, and I believe everybody has at least one novel in there, right. uh, I would want to write, I think, this generation's bonfire of the vanities. And the late Tom Wolfe, he wrote that book, I believe, in 1985 or 86. And it was a remarkable picture of a time, of a culture, of characters that everyone could relate to. And I think it was a, wor a splendid work of literature that really captured the essence of various communities and I think was a wonderful comment on our society at that time. And I yearn to read somebody. If I can't write it, I hope someone else can write the next Bonfire of the Vanities. So Bob Masters, Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, Bob Masters, thank you so much for being with us on Miranda Warnings. It was my pleasure, David. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.